0: This podcast is an audio recording of a live event. It may reference visual material that cannot be represented in this recording. It may also contain strong language and adult themes. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ACME.
1: Thank you all for coming to this panel of Criminalising Queer. My name is Natasha Gadd, and I'm the Public Programs Manager at ACME. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the First Peoples and traditional owners of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present. So, on behalf of ACME and the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, I'd like to thank my fellow panellists, Catherine Dixon and Dr. Lauren Rosewan, for joining me here today for this session. Lauren rose is a senior lecturer in the School of Social and Political Sciences at the Uni of Melbourne and currently teaches in the areas of political science and gender studies. She's the author of eight books and writes comments and speaks on a wide variety of topics including gender, sexuality and popular culture. Catherine Dixon is the executive director of the Victorian Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission. She has 19 years of legal policy and advocacy experience. Specialising in the areas of equal opportunity and human rights. I thought maybe just before we sort of get into it, I might just ask each of you um, what your interest was in joining this panel and this conversation today.
2: I'm a real true crime junkie, so Forensic Files is one of my favourite shows. The worse quality, the reenactments, the better. So I feel that the intellectual side aside, I think that I have a lot to to impart on this panel from purely
3: drawing from my leisure experience. Great, I love that answer. (laughs) Catherine. So, Tash, I've got a real interest in documentary film and the way in which you can bring um, real stories to life uh, that can actually challenge some of our um, discriminatory ways of thinking and acting.
1: So that's my interest in being here. And I have to second that. I'm, I'm a documentary filmmaker, and I'm also interested in the power of documentary to uh, change attitudes and um, particularly in these cases, um, actually create, uh, uh, significant change for the lives of the accused and the, the um, subjects featured in, in the docos that we'll be looking at today. So on Saturday, uh, Melbourne Queer Film Festival had the premiere screening of a documentary called Southwest of Salem. Uh, it's about the San Antonio Four, four queer Latina uh, women who were wrongly accused of the uh, rape of two young girls. We might just. Just actually first up, um, can you show, a, a show hands of anyone who actually managed to see the doco on Saturday? Okay, that's great. So we've, we've got some clips to show so that we can contextualise things if you haven't actually seen the films that we'll be talking about today. So we hope that you'll still get a sense of, of what um, the films are, are about. So can we please cue clip one, Jason?
4: Panic calls. Satanic ritual abuse has become the fastest growing and most controversial psychological phenomenon in the country. It's a modern twist to an ancient story. Investigated their world of covenants and sacrifices. This case is the probably- off track in about every way you could
0: according to the people in court
1: this is what gay people do no so after the trial the women were convicted uh, and sentenced to 37 years in prison and In the documentary, a Canadian academic poses the question, how did this get past the media, the jury, the approvals process and their defence lawyers? And this is probably the most pertinent question, I think, raised in the film and applies to a number of cases um, of a similar nature. So today, along with my fellow panellists and also uh, Deborah, who's the director of Southwest of Salem, who's done a pre-recorded interview for us, we'll be trying to unpack this very loaded question. So I thought maybe we could start with place. This is a 90s small town, Midwest America, which is a obviously conservative sort of Bible belt. And Lauren, I might ask you to sort of set the scene a little bit for us in terms of the prevailing attitudes of the time. Yeah, so on one hand, the 90s seems like a really, really long time ago.
2: And yet a lot has happened, be it legislative wise, culture, etc. So we're talking about And the United States is often thought of in terms of the coasts, you know, the East Coast and the West Coast. But a lot of really strange stuff happens in the middle. And cultural changes that are happening on the edges take a lot longer to reach the middle. Not only is that at play here, but also we're talking about here, smaller towns outside of bigger towns. And we know from voting patterns and data that areas outside of big cities tend to vote more conservative. So you've got that playing in the background, which is sort of demographic data that exists anyway. Add to this the period of the 90s, which was really the heyday of emos. You know, the idea that, you know, people who dress, God forbid, in black, Melbourne must be full of us, uh, all in black. The idea that you're having sort of goth style music, having a revival, Marilyn Manson. This is a time where culture was already getting a little bit unsettled about some of the popular culture that was creeping into some of these towns. Add to that a really narrow understanding of what that stuff means culturally, i.e., okay, Goth must mean satanic. And you've got this really strange mix. And uh, I think one of the news reporters in that clip we just saw mentioned this idea of satanic panic. And satanic panic it's almost so funny to think this was actually a hugely influential thing you know child care centres were being wrapped up in satanic panic scandals where child care workers were suspected of having ritual abuse on children that was connected to satan and it seems hilarious and yet really disturbing there are so many books written about this period in history where this was one of the cases wrapped up in what was called satanic panic at the time this case and many others not only though had the element of the sort of fear of the goth or fear of the emo element but also fear of the other. In this case the other was lesbians and that added another element that goth and emo represented everything that was the antithesis of the values of suburban Texas at this time.
1: I think that's actually a good place to cue our second clip, thanks Jason.
5: when this happened,
0: Anna, she was the one that came and told me because she found out about it. Um, when she first mentioned it, I thought that she was only saying that Liz was being accused of it. But then she turned around and said that we were also, and I lost it.
4: I'll let them know.
5: I was a homosexual because uh, he had ass. I, I said yes.
4: I, I willingly cooperated with them. I, I don't feel like anything in my my statement was bad or you know incriminating for me. So you believe as you're
0: growing up that if you tell the truth, everything's going to be fine. You know, a couple people told me you need an attorney.
2: Why would I need an attorney? I'm I'm innocent. There's nothing, you know, that ever happened.
4: Oh man. You really went after this, like nobody got in her face. It was horrible. It was horrible. It was horrible. He was very prejudiced. Prejudiced against I guess her being gay. Baby's a witch. You know. I was trying to say because we were four women and that um, and the, the, the way supposedly the girls were assaulted, that we were trying to sacrifice them because of our lifestyle. In the United States, starting in the early 80s until the early 90s, the country was convulsed with this idea that there, were, there was some kind of an international satanic cult that had infiltrated daycare centers and preschools and that their mission was to um, sexually abuse children in order to destroy their minds. And then later on when the kids would be adults, somebody would like snap their fingers and all of a sudden these kids would line up and join the cult. As completely insane as this sounds, this belief got into child protection services, it got into police departments, it got into psychotherapy. How many of you worked with ritual belief It got into DA's offices. Scores of people were convicted who were just working in daycare centers and preschools on the basis of no conventional evidence whatsoever. I've looked at a lot of cases all over the country and it's quite common for either the defendants to be gay or the defendants to be suspected to be gay. The first daycare conviction in 1985 was of a young man in Massachusetts. He was working in a daycare center, and when he was 18 years old, he came out. There were parents of children at the daycare center who were very anxious and disturbed by the fact that he was gay.
1: So, Catherine, I wanted to ask you, and it's a really complex question, but just how do you think the uh, sort of um, this moral panic this fear of homosexuality and satanic ritual abuse infiltrated so many aspects of the criminal justice system at this time. That that is a
3: pretty complex question, but I think if you think about the fact that, the, I mean, the criminal justice system is made up of, of the police, who um, who bring to their work a particular perspective that's shaped by the community that they work work in. Um, it's Brought by prosecution teams who construct a particular narrative around well how how has this crime occurred and their job is to to prove beyond reasonable doubt that it has. It's premised on juries that come to um, a courtroom with their own um, perceptions, prejudices, and biases, and a judge who similarly has those you know is from within a community. and none of I mean none of this happens in the abstract. I mean we've got laws that are meant to protect people through these processes. you know you're innocent until you're proven guilty. Um, and there's that presumption of innocence. there's a whole range of criminal safeguards that are meant to exist, I guess to combat those sorts of um, biases. For example, it doesn't it doesn't appear that these women, you know, when they were questioned by the police, had a lawyer present, um, that they were advised of their rights. Uh, they ha- have um, gone into this process on the way that I guess they were raised, and a lot of us are, that if you tell the truth, then that's good enough. And, I, and that's, that, that was really compelling to me when one of the um, accused said that. But it, the system isn't, um, in their favour, so it, that's just not going to be enough. I mean, there's just inherent biases at, at all of those um, points, and it's because this system doesn't exist in the abstract. It is very much shaped by the community in which it operates, uh, and as Lauren's pointed out, what's going on culturally at the time. Uh, and it's just really clear from watching this that, that the defendant's sexuality uh, was perceived as, a, as, as perversion, uh, as evil, um, as sick, and therefore as, well, um, s- satanic.
1: Mm. Lauren, do you think, uh, do, you, do you have a sense in, of sort of what role the media plays in this? And also, what comes first? Is it the community attitudes that shape, uh, you know, the jury that shapes the criminal justice system? media representations, like how do you sort of see that cycle? So
2: it's a bit tricky on one hand also there isn't a singular the media. In a sense in the United States particularly news is very regional so in terms of how it was covered on a local state level compared to national. It's interesting that this story got national coverage, but it got national coverage for the same reasons that it actually got prosecuted in the first place. It was fitting into a narrative that was already existing. And we've seen this in Melbourne in terms of when a case gets a lot of attention. For example, uh, a news reporter is uh, accused of sexism. There's a a kind of tumbleweed effect where you see a whole lot of news stories that week of a similar nature and because we're suddenly our eyes are sharpened to, to looking for these things because there's a ready-made audience for that story. We saw this last year. This was something I wrote about. Um, it was a, a sexual harassment on, uh, on field. I know nothing about sport, but it was some sort of game was playing and the female journalist uh, was <clears throat> had a, a sexist comment made to her by a player. And that week, there was something like five or six other like stories that were, were pitched as though they were similar. This happens all the time with crime stories where suddenly the news realises there's an appetite for these stories and there's a flow on effect and there's a cr- closer scrutiny of it so this became a national story because it was so fantastic in the sense of fantastical as opposed to great. It had all of these cinematic elements to it You know, if you know, if for those of you who've watched the documentary when you read the transcripts of what allegedly was done to these children it was amazing, it makes the film like The Exorcist sound tame. This was incredibly complicated and in detailed. It also has that element which we haven't discussed about false memory. And that was another part of the, the story in the 1990s where all these victims were of abuse who suddenly had repressed memories come to the surface. Not real, or at least it wasn't acknowledged at the time. This was a theory of, from psychologists as opposed to facts. So these repressed memories of all the satanic... Um, uh, sh- shenanigans I'd been exposed to as a child suddenly came in, uh, in came out a sort of Manchurian Candidate style. In adulthood, it was a perfect media story. It was now whether that helps or hinders. I suspect it hinders getting an impartial jury. But also the players are all there for this story to play out in terms of victims. Who were the victims and who were the villains? This wasn't a story packaged to the to the audience with much nuance.
3: And just on that as well, Tash, I mean two aspects as well. You've got to remember um, that also they they're very there's other vulnerabilities. Um, they're young yeah. and uh, they're they're poor. Uh, yeah. and you know, they're from a particular racial background and that there's so it's not just that Triple they're marginalization well. going on. Yeah, they were unsympathetic that, villains. That's right. Yeah. Um and I think the other point is when you've got someone's uh, own word and testimony in that context. That's then up against an expert uh, who, in this case, um, has basically examined the children and found that there had been penetration. Then it doesn't take much for a jury. I would have, I would have thought, to to connect that. Oh, a, a group that I um, am fearful of, that I think have perversions. That may have been, in, that will have been in contact with these children. Something has happened to these children. Therefore, it's them.
2: And forensic evidence. There's plenty of mm. research that supports how persuasive that is for mm. juries in terms of the magic bullet. Oh, okay. Mm. They've got um, a vaginal. What phrase did they use? Scar it was a scarring, tissue. Mm. scar tissue. Even though that later was explained as something else, for a jury, that's incredibly potent.
1: That's your smoking gun. Yeah. Let's uh, throw to clip four, please. This is uh, the pre-recorded interview with the director of the film, Deborah.
0: Hi, this is Deb Eskenazi. I'm the director of Southwest of Salem. And I just wanted to thank everybody for joining in the screening. And I wanted to um, respond to some really interesting questions that were sent over to me. So let's get started. Clearly the film's title is a nod to the Salem Witch Trials. Were you aware of the notion of the Satanic Panic when you set out to make this film, and what did you discover when you examined it further? Um, Yes, I knew about the Satanic Panic because, in fact, I share several social identities with the women. Um, I um, was closeted in Texas, uh, grew up in the 90s, and during the tail end of the Satanic Panic, um, it was not uncommon for schools back in the 90s when I was in school for them to have discussions with students about being careful, about um safeness sort of running among you. So I knew it well, but I only knew it from my experience. I hadn't really taken the time to really understand the scholarship and the kind of academic inquiries and the social science analysis that came after the era was over. And really what you discover is that the satanic panic, like other panics, transphobia, Islamophobia, we see today, it is a moral panic that comes from deep-seated fears. Um, and in the women's case, particularly um, the issue of being gay and, and in a in a place where in the 90s, you know, was considered to be diseased, to be perverted. I mean, this was really entwined. Um, as you now have seen with the, the way that um, prosecutors and district attorneys and even police detectives investigated the case.
1: So this case um, shares sort of striking similarities with another case uh, on the West Memphis Three. Has anyone here, are you familiar with that particular case? Has anyone seen the Paradise Lost documentary series? <laughs> So the case of the West Memphis Three was um, about three teenage boys who were wrongfully convicted of the mutilation, uh, rape and murder of three young boys in the early 90s. Um, and these three teenagers were tried and convicted in 94. Damien Eccles was sentenced to death. Jesse Miss Kelly Jr. was sentenced to life imprisonment, uh, plus two, 20 year sentences, and Jason Baldwin was sentenced to life imprisonment. We might just show a clip of uh, the trailer for Paradise Lost. In
0: A new statement given to the police and obtained by a Memphis newspaper, 17 year old Jesse misskelly allegedly confesses to watching two other suspects choke, rape, and sexually mutilate three West Memphis second graders. The murders had been part of a satanic ritual.
5: Satanic worship. And horrific ritualistic sacrifice. We're just sitting on the couch watching TV the night we were arrested.
4: They had to find somebody to pin us This These publicists would get my hand. We, the jury, find Jesse
5: Lloyd, Miss Kelly Jr., guilty of second-degree murder. Jason Baldwin, guilty of capital murder. Damien Tackles, guilty of capital murder. This doesn't change anything. is was, Christ still, was my, dead. Our son and was he was still tortured to death
4: by three murderers. On a ditch bank. He was eight years old. Damn sister stinks. At a press conference, Inspector Gary Gitchell
1: said the case against the accused teens is very strong.
4: You know, one
5: to ten,
4: a <laughs> <laughs> Christopher never hurt anybody. He had a gentle loving and giving heart.
5: And they crucified him in those woods. And they humiliated his little body. They took his little manhood before he even
3: knew what it was. And I hate him for it.
5: David, are you worried about Jesse testifying against
4: him? In looking at young people involved in the occult, do you see any particular type of dress? I have uh, personally observed people wearing uh, black fingernails,
5: having their hair painted black, wearing black T-shirts. Sometimes they will tattoo themselves.
2: It Also states that Damien stated that the younger the victim would be, more innocent, and in turn more power would be given the person doing the killing. All right. Did you say that? Yes. Hey, those are your words. Mm-hmm. You, did you pick that up
0: when you were studying to be a Catholic?
5: No. I saw that on several movies, books.
0: Question number 11, when he asked you, how do you think they died?
5: And its answer is mutilation, cut up all three, heard they were in the water drowning, cut up one more than the others, is that, again, what Officer Ridge said, and you just agreed? No, I had saw that on TV, newspapers, people talking.
1: There's so many similarities uh, between these two cases, Lauren. I'm interested in the idea of what you were talking about earlier in terms of the interests, um, hobbies, musical interests. These guys, you know, were big fans of Metallica. They had long hair, dark painted nails. Um, how did that image? Um, because, like, how do you think that influenced the kind of focus on the uh, supposed homosexual nature of this crime? Yeah, this is
2: incredibly complicated because all the issues on the previous doco were compounded here in terms of also issues of poverty, small town America, etc. When Damien, <clears throat> the boy who gets most of the attention in in Paradise Lost, when he's interviewed, it's so easy for me to relate to this guy who, at seventeen, is living in a very small town that's incredibly conservative and he just likes Metallica and to wear black clothes. And suddenly that was enough to make him exceptionally different from everyone around him. As someone who's lived in small town America, it's actually very easy to feel very different. Uh, and I was working at a university and I've done it twice for my sins. And it's very easy to feel very different in small towns in the United States. I'm sure it's the same in Australia. I've not done it. but. So when he's interviewed, he's giving answers in the way that a sarcastic teen would and sounding a bit glib, sounding as though um, a little ironic about this. you know, Some of his answers you could see in that clip where he was saying, well, I've seen this stuff in the movies. I've read about this because I'm well read. And yet the more he did that, the more he alienated himself to witnesses, to onlookers, to people in the town who also, and this is the other thing in both cases, but much sharper in Paradise Lost. We've got three corpses and we want an answer. And here we've got a handful of kids who look a little different, if not a little creepy, in, uh, in terms of Memphis standards, who have already identified that they like heavy metal, i.e., satanic music. <laughs> And in Damon Eckles' place, had spoken about reading literature associated with the occult. Now, of, of, for those of you who've read things that are slightly subversive, it's not tantamount to actual participation. And yet all of these things work together to have a ready victim. And I think this is an interesting uh, convergence of music and fashion and culture and the perpetual notion of outsiderness, which I think you know, in terms of the United States, but in terms of any small town, it has a real stranglehold on culture.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the difference in this case is that as far as I can recall, none of the three um, accused identified as being no. gay. N- but, they were considered to be feminine because- The nail polish. The nail polish, the long hair, and also because of the focus on what was considered to be the sexual nature of the crimes. So when the corpses of the three young boys were found, um, they were declared to have been sexually mutilated, uh, and which over the subsequent course of the doco series, we discover was actually something that occurred post-mortem after the bodies were dumped in the creek and reptiles had attacked the tissue, the genitalia of the young boys. Um, So yeah, Catherine, I guess I'm, again, it's a really kind of complex question, uh, but often evidence in the court of law is something that you would hope would, I guess, offer proof of of something happening. And in this case, uh, the evidence and the expert opinions were later proven incorrect. With really tragic repercussions for the accused. How do you think this got through so many layers of the system and, you know, this, this focus on the alleged sex, sex crimes of these cases? Yeah,
3: it's almost unfathomable that um, also the parents of those children um, y- y- were led to believe by the police and the prosecution that the, the, the crimes had been sexual. Uh, I mean, obviously it's bad and, I mean, it's just shocking as it is, um, that they're homicides, but the idea that, that there was a sexual um, assault on the children, um, or, or mutilation as well, um, and you can see how that affected at least one of the parents, uh, obviously, in that, in that clip just then. Um, the, the fact that that evidence, I guess, was put forward I mean, something's happened, hasn't it, in the way that the police have secured the crime scene? Something has happened in the way that the prosecution have framed the narrative? Um, And there's so many problems with the evidence in that case that, in fact, if you take all that out, there's really barely any evidence then that remains except for the confession of one of the young Boys, and when you look at that confession, I mean, from what I can gather from the doco is this guy's got a a, a mental impairment, he's only 17, he's being interrogated by police, from what I can gather, without a lawyer or a support person or his parents for hours, like 20 or something hours, then confesses. Because in uh, the, the literature I've read, sort of, he, he wants it to end. He he wants that interrogation to end, but actually that then starts um, a whole uh, a series of consequences for the other, for himself and the other accused. Uh, and I mean, the defence tried to address that by talking about the suggestibility of young children when police, you know, examine them and things like that. But um, But clearly those safeguards are just not in place in order to protect the vulnerability of these accused through the system. Uh, But I just think too how shocking for those parents because not only do they not know uh, who who has killed their children, but they also, some of them from what I understand, also died before they realised that their children weren't sexually assaulted.
1: Yeah, that's one of the the great tragedies of the case as well. But the youth of these
3: people is another factor that um, clearly there's just... I don't understand how they can be interviewed by the police without any support mechanisms Mm -hmm. as well um, for that confession to have been elicited.
1: Let's look at a really different uh, case now. This is... Has anyone seen The Staircase? It's a French six-part series. Uh, We'll cue the next clip. Thanks, Jase.
0: Durham police this morning are investigating the death of a prominent city resident. The officers were called early this morning to the home of Nortel executive Kathleen Peterson, who was found dead in her Forest Hills mansion after apparently falling down the stairs. Kathleen Peterson's husband is novelist Michael Peterson, well known for his books on the Vietnam War. He is also a former columnist for the Durham Herald Sun and ran an unsuccessful mayoral campaign in 1999. Neuron police have refused additional comment on the death.
5: According to the persons that that know her well, they've told us that, um, including most especially her sister, that she would have been infuriated by learning that her husband, who she truly loved, was bisexual and having an extramarital relationship, not with another woman, but with a man, which would be um, humiliating and embarrassing to her. We believe that once you learn this information, that an argument ensued, and the homicide occurred. I was looking out here, deal with the photographs that were taken from his computer, and most of them are um, homosexual military men, and they're all different types of things that they're doing, but you know, multiple partners, um, but they're all portrayed as being gay military men um, performing sexual acts on each other. And part of um, one of the persons that we believe that he had had a relationship with, um, we we believe he came, um, he met this person from a website that once again was designed for homosexual military men. And this individual that um, has been interviewed and that we know about that we believe had some type of relationship with Mr. Pearson, contemporaneous with the time period um, that we've been talking about, um, he fits right into this moment. It's not the type of thing your typical average juror, typical average citizen would want to access, nor would want to play out in their personal lives. Not if they want to portray themselves as someone that has this perfect marriage or however he wants to make his life seem so perfect. with his wife. But it's obviously very powerful information that he wants kept from the public in particular, but certainly the jury, because it could be very damaging from a lot of perspectives.
1: Yeah, so whilst this case is incredibly different, um, it's, I guess, this idea of conflating homosexuality with perversion. is running through all of these cases what what do you make of, of the staircase Lauren and this you you're quite familiar with the the region in which this yeah took in place.
2: in North Carolina uh, for a book that I was writing a couple of years ago there's an episode of CSI and I think this illustrates what I think the staircase kind of does in a in a longer form the investigators go into a house of of a murder victim and they start looking for clues and the first thing they do is open a drawer and say, oh there's a dildo and three butt plugs. And that was somehow the key to why she was murdered. That's not a one-off example. I could rattle off lots of these examples where a law and order investigation ends up in a sex shop. And this idea of coupling deviance, and the, the, and I'm using deviance not necessarily in a, in a disparaging way, but even just sort of non-vanilla sexual interest, as being tantamount to being an outsider and perverse in all sectors of life that you're more prone to criminality that you're more prone to being as someone that society would consider to be a problem makes these narratives a ready-made scenario of, oh, yeah, of course, you know, you're going to be a victim or you're going to be a villain if you're involved in this kind of sex play. And we've got a ready-made culture for that because shows, particularly um, crime entertainment shows, love to stir in a sexual element. So I think culture has long done this. This is There's nothing new about the coupling of, of <coughs> uh, subversive sexual interest with subversive attitudes socially and I think this is a good use. the staircases but all three are very good examples of of sexuality being perceived as both smoking gun and risk factor as well that these make sense these crimes make sense because there was an element of uh,
1: non-normal sexuality involved. They really get the sense that the prosecution just really felt like they hit the jackpot when they came across those images. What do you think, Catherine? Yeah, well, the prosecutor,
3: um, the female prosecutor, I mean, she could sort of barely bring herself to sort of describe the kinds of things on his computer, could she? I no, mean, she was, on was, the, was struggling. The website. Was, yeah. I mean, it was. yeah, it was so sickening. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, I, I just just though on Lauren's point, I mean, I guess... We have to remember that even here in Victoria, it wasn't until the 80s that um, consensual gay male sex was decriminalised. And so, in fact, in the law in itself, um, that you've got this entrenched homophobia in the law that that says, well, um, you need to be locked up for this behaviour and, you know, all those cases of... Um, police sort of almost entrapping, you know, men uh, in order to um, charge them with offences sort of, you know, like like loitering for a homosexual purpose. I mean, you're not actually even Mm -hmm. doing anything if you're loitering for a homosexual purpose. And sort of even the way that the crimes were described, you know, the abominable crime of, you know whatever it is, um, it's, yeah, it, it was only, you know, not that long ago that um, I guess that sort of thinking about, well, this is perversion and it's sick
1: and evil, it was sort of entrenched in the law in itself, so. And what happened, that was the recent, the 2000, Is it 2015, when the convictions were overturned for yeah, so, criminal um, offences? I just, yeah, looking at
3: the date, so, yeah, that's right, so there's a, in, In 2015, there was a a campaign basically to expunge those um, old historic homosexual convictions, um, which was really significant because, um, I mean, not only did it ruin those men's um, lives at the time, particularly if they were put into prison, but it then had a continuing effect because of the stigma associated with having a criminal conviction then um, attached to your name in terms of employment and otherwise. and so recently in Victoria, there, uh, a lot of advocacy work had, had been done ab- about trying to overturn those convictions and, or expunge them so that, as though they've never existed. And then last year, there was an apology that was given in Parliament in, um, for, those, for those men. And I might just read you, if it's OK, I just want to read you one of the um, stories from that, because it sort of encapsulates this in a way. Um, I know one of the men that was sent to Pentridge in 1951 for the, one of these crimes was Noel Tuvey. Um And he said, um, Max was singing an aria from La Traviata when the police arrived. I was very naive. I knew having sex with men was against the law, but I didn't understand why it was a crime. At the hearing, the judge said, you've been charged with the abominable crime of buggery. How do you plead? The maximum sentence was 15 years. Afterwards, only two people would talk to me. I couldn't get a job. I was a known criminal. And it's ironic. Eventually, I would have been forgiven by everyone if I'd murdered Max, but no one could forgive me for having sex with him. Wow. I just wanted to read that because I guess it just drives home that it was only last year that Parliament apologised to these men for entrenching homophobia in our laws and it impacted upon them in in a really fundamental way. So I guess context, it's not surprising that we, you know, if we've got laws like that that exist, it's not surprising that we have um, cases like this, I think, that, you know, where the community associates perversion with um, people's
1: sexuality. I think that's a good point to throw to the next clip, which is a question that we began with uh, about how the case of the San Antonio Antonio Four got past uh, so many facets of the criminal justice system, as well as the jury and the community.
0: Yeah, it's a good question. It's actually Daryl Otto, um, the Canadian uh, research scientist who says that and says sort of, you know, says back to, I think, what the audience is already thinking, how does this get past? All of these forebearers that could have stopped this from the beginning. You know, again, I think it's the issue of people being afraid of what they don't know or don't understand. And in a place like the early 90s, um, you know, at the time, it's not just a satanic panic, but in the US, there's "Don't Ask, Don't Tell," which is a military initiative passed by the Clintons, where, um, and even in a place like San Antonio, which is a heavy, heavy, military town, where you know if you are gay, just don't tell anybody. You know these things do affect all aspects um, of of the paternalistic of of paternalism of of you know society and. Uh, you know, how does it get past the approvals process? How does it get past the defense attorneys and the media and the jurors? And the and the answer is, I don't know. And I think that's what's so disturbing and so powerful about a panic is that nobody really understands how it infiltrates these, you know, these these places. Um, but our job, and my job, I guess, as an artist and as a journalist and as a filmmaker, is to at least be asking the questions.
1: Mm. Um, Catherine, you've sort of recently been involved with some work uh, with the Victorian Equal Opportunities and Human Rights Commission. Can you talk a little bit about some of the uh, new sort of the changes in terms of media reporting that you've been working on?
3: Yeah, I mean, so uh, just as context, um, the Equal Opportunity and Human Rights Commission um, has functions under three laws, the Charter of Human Rights, the Racial and Religious Tolerance Act, and the Equal Opportunity Act. And it's under the Equal Opportunity Act that discrimination is prohibited on a number of different attributes. Um, But gender identity and sexual orientation and now expunged uh, homosexual conviction are all all attributes under that act. And so the the work that the commission does uh, is it takes complaints um, in relation to people that I have been discriminated against, whether it's in the workplace um, or the, the, the way in which services are delivered or not delivered, or um, there's a whole range of different areas in education, in sport, uh, and so you know, at the commission we've done a fair bit of work ar- around producing guidelines, for example, um, transgender Um, guidelines in relation to um, preventing discrimination in employment and in sport, those sorts of areas. Um, But one of the most recent um, pieces of work we've done uh, with Ro Allen, who's the Gender and Sexuality Commissioner, is this guide for for media reporting on gender identity. And I'll sort of give you an example sort of of how some of this um, came up. Oh, just an example, but listen to this headline. Woman accused of terrifying 7-Eleven axe attack is transgender unionist once known as Carl. that That's the headline for... It's very confusing, isn't it? But it's the Daily Mail? Yeah. No. It's... I guess we felt a need... Um, again, it's that idea that when crimes are reported, what, what the media are focusing on are the fact that the person... Um, you know, is a trans woman, for example, and then you read the report, and in fact, that's all that's talked about, um, you know, uh, is issues around gender identity or sexual orientation rather than, well, what's the newsworthy aspect of this? Um, so we've, we've produced a guide, you know, on reporting, and it's really basic, but it's things like, you know, um, don't use terms like tranny, uh, use, you know, terms like trans, um, it's it's about language, you know. Um, you know, don't don't judge. Keep an open mind. Uh, don't treat trans and gender diverse people as objects or curiosities. Treat them with respect. Um, it, it, there's a whole it, do's and don'ts, and I know it sounds really basic, but this is sort of the level I think we're at with the way in which the media reports these things. And so, um, you know, that that's just an example of some of the. Work that we've been doing to to try and combat the way the media reports these these things, in, you know, in in the news.
1: So maybe just getting back to West of Salem, um, let's just throw to Deborah again. Um, I asked her about uh, for those of you who've seen the, who haven't seen the documentary, the uh, recanting statement from one of the um, victims, and this is Stephanie Limon. Um, who was one of the accused's nieces Uh, I might just cue that next clip, thanks Jason
0: Yeah that was a big deal Um, as you can see earlier in the film there's a moment when Stephanie is recanting to the rolling cameras and um, she sort of divulges, not just to myself but to the Innocence Project attorneys who are sitting there and she's signing an affidavit and she recants in my car in my Subaru, um, you know, just an hour later, and sort of tells the cameras the full story. I mean, it was a really that was a really intense day. I don't think anybody expected that day to come, and when it did, you know, that really was one of those moments where as a as a journalist, as a documentarian, you kind of find yourself in the middle of the story. And what I did after, and I know some people already know this and I've talked about it, is I leaked that tape or the audio um, to a local news bureau in San Antonio, um, because I didn't, didn't have the resources or the power to do anything. And then the attorneys knew that it was still an uphill battle. It's a recantation in America isn't enough to get people out of prison, you need other evidence at, at, the, at the level up um, to which these women are fighting, which is exoneration, which means they lost their appeals. So, um, you know, The only thing we could think to do, or I could think to do, was to bring the media as as an advocate. And so I leaked the tape um, to the San Antonio News Bureau, and uh, you can hear a little bit of that um, in the film. And basically it sort of took off from there, and I think part of what we did right, and what I'm really proud of, is because I knew I had no cultural capital or power, um, you know, I was just this indie filmmaker in living in Texas, dealing with my own internalized homophobia, and I, and I did come out throughout the process of, um, of making the film. And in fact, the women are um, <laughs> the first people I, I basically told before my family um, while they were in prison about my own journey. But, you know, um, I feel like we sort of knew we were caught in something in this very potentially exciting reality. We had this recantation and we would gather advocates and community and, and, and engage the community, LGBTQ um, individuals to join the fight and, and they did. And I feel like so much of what we see today is not just the women being extraordinary and the story being extraordinary, not only just a piece of art that's been made um, into a film, but also the way that um, our community, the queer community engaged early on to make sure that we weren't going to stop until these women were free. And so really it's a success
1: it's a success story on all levels. Lauren, I'm interested in how in the, the role that the media played when she leaked that recantation tape it, and kind of the irony of how that helped exonerate the women after the kind of myths that the media were responsible for perpetuating in the first place. And I'm using that big generic the media term again, sorry.
2: <laughs> um, we're a culture that likes to blame the media for everything. Where the culture says, like, oh, women's bad self-esteem, it's the media's fault. You know, the media is the is the whipping boy. It's been the whipping boy for a number of decades. I think this <clears throat> is one of many examples of recent years. Making of a murderer, Jinx also uh, two other series that come to mind where the media actually took uh, these these documentaries and ran with it in terms of it making it a social issue and repackaging it as sort of spotlighting flaws in the criminal justice system, then they get a new life of their own. And if, if anyone who's done advocacy work or activism work, the whole... Uh, uh, efforts to get your project some attention and to get it on the agenda, if you can get the media involved, if there's a hook there for the media, half your job is done. And this is really what happened in this case where a a new spotlight was was put on the case that was able to shame uh, the justice system into actually taking another look at the case. And I think particularly the recant was very interesting because it spotlighted a, this idea of repressed memory, or at least false memory, and um, a whole lot of things that people who are interested in how the brain works would know about. Our brains don't work like a recorder; we can't just rewind, and we take that for granted—that as though a child tell, you know, a child saying something necessarily makes it true. And what was interesting here is there's so many other factors at play. The uh, I think the probing from the father and the grandmother to the victim that ends up rec- recanting until she ended up coughing up this story was fascinating because her father was also obsessed with one of these women so that's another element to this case there's a spurned love interest uh, aspect to this story as well that gave him a a preconceived notion that it'd be great if I could get something on these women because this woman particularly is not interested in me sexually and that adds another element which I think makes it similar to the staircase about um, not so much infidelity but the, but the idea of uh, relationships occurring outside of a heterosexual union... It being, and rejection. Yeah, rejection and being perceived as some sort of competition. But to answer your question, yes, the media in this case uh, gave a spotlight to a story that had been shut down previously. The doco gave it new life. So the doco as one aspect of the media, then the news media seeing an in and an angle uh, in a climate that actually had started already being interested in true crime stuff again. And yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. And another, uh, I guess, institutional organisation giving spotlight to some of these crimes is the Innocence Project, which I think was involved in both the case of the San Antonio yep. 4 and the West Memphis 3. Um, Catherine, do you sort of know much about their MO and uh, the work that they're doing in cases similar to this? Yeah, look, I don't have any personal
3: experience um, like of working with, with them, but um, from what I... You know, can gather from the way in which they are involved in these cases, um, particularly in America, is the use of DNA um, evidence in order to exonerate um, people that have been wrongfully convicted and, in fact, often being able to point um, uh, in a different direction who the actual offender has been through the use of DNA. So, for example, being able to um, use, I guess, technology that didn't exist at the time that the crimes were um, occur- occurred to then go back and say, well, hang on, um, it, have we got this right? Because often, um, you know, a lot of the convictions that they've re-examined have, I think, you know, been based, for example, on eyewitness testimony and things like that. Where, whereas later, they can they can say, well, actually, no, we've got DNA evidence to show that, that this just is not the perpetrator, and that's so powerful. That expert evidence is so powerful in these cases; it's usually what they turn on. So, for example, in this matter, as soon as um, as soon as that recanting occurred from the accused, I mean, I, I think after not sure whether it was after that or around the same time, the expert, the expert in the case um, came forward and, and also said, look, there's been developments in my field as well since since that um, trial, and in fact, I'm no longer satisfied that my evidence was um, is now correct. And so once you now have the two real key sort of... Um, Uh, basis upon which these women were in jail for so long, the evidence of the child as well as then the expert evidence, then there's really nothing to convict these women on.
2: And there's enough to reopen because they've yeah. exhausted their appeals. So yeah. that's what they can do to try and get which the doco, uh, the director was explaining about to get to that exoneration, exoneration stage. Yeah. You can't just have the recount. You also needed mm. that woman saying, actually, the scar tissue mm. uh, issue is actually a little bit more complicated because this assumption of an intact time and, mm. and every female genital is mm. looking exactly the same is actually a really flawed assumption. And, in fact, there's a lot more going on there. And I think it's hard to imagine that there was a time where, you know, you basically had this perception of, of a hymen as an intact piece of sti- skin mm-hmm. as opposed to, you know, I mean, anyone, who, anyway. Um, you know, this, this I, I use the analogy with students a couple of weeks ago, you know, we've got this strange cultural perception as like a football banner, right? You've got to plough through it <laughs> as opposed to, in fact, it already has holes. It's all, alre- you know, and it's, a, it's, it's interesting because we've got this perception now. That was part of what mm. got these,
1: women sentences of of decade long Mm. yeah which is really and what's interesting is how that evidence which was since sort of debunked as junk science I guess um, is so similar to what happened with the West Memphis 3 case where the focus was so much on the sexual uh, nature the sexual violence of the crimes which both Evidence in both cases were um, shot down at a later date. With, as yeah. I said, the the, um, the the kind of expert coming forward in the West Memphis Three case and saying, in fact, these were, the genitalia of the young boys were not mutilated. This was something that happened post mortem by reptiles in the creek bed. And even the staircase. I mean, it, it's it's evident that the prosecution,
3: uh, you, I mean, used. Had to, I mean, needed a motive in that case, Um, and the insurance policy I think was one motive on this. um, It's
2: always insurance policies in forensic files. Be very wary wary if your partner gets a very lucrative (laughs) insurance policy taken out on you.
3: But the other, the other um, theory though was that oh well, something violent had occurred because she found out that he was, you know, had. Was bisexual, or had been looking at things online, or whatever mm-hmm. it was. Um, that and that somehow, I
1: mean, that was Eminence an important part g- of, yeah, mm-hmm. important part of creating a motive. And for those who have watched the staircase, or those who haven't, whatever you do when you finish, you need to then look up further evidence of the owl theory. If you yeah, haven't gone down that wormhole, you need to. Um, we um, might just t- throw Tash, it just sorry. one more yeah. thing just on on that. I think that's really
3: important to mention is the way in which um, it, when one of the women ca- uh, got parole early, the way she um, really tried to cr- create support within the the uh, queer community in order to try and get a groundswell of support for the the women that were remaining in prison, um, and then obviously the Innocence Project came on board too, but just the power of the documentary film in this. I mean, there's other examples of documentary filmmaking like Errol Morris and others who've been able to actually uncover you know, an alternative reality, basically, um, or uncover a truth that no one knew about. Like, it's just very important to recognise that, uh, you Absolutely. know, it's a real achievement in that documentary.
1: Absolutely. And that leads exactly to the next question that I asked of Deborah, which was, um, you know, praising her for her documentary and saying that it joins the ranks of films like The Thin Blue Line. Yeah, um, Thin Blue Line, um, yeah. And Paradise Lost, uh, which were instrumental in overturning wrongful convictions. Um, and... I asked her if that was if proving the innocence of the San Antonio Four was her um, intention when she set out to make the film, and this is her response.
0: Um, yeah, that's exciting to be sort of feel like to be part of those incredible films, and it definitely was. Um, you know, it's an interesting thing to look back on the journey of creating Southwest of Salem because initially it began as wanting to pitch a radio story. I was teaching um, teens public radio, and I really started off as a kernel of an idea of a story, but that got rejected um, from my public radio bureau. And then suddenly I found myself picking up a camera, and I already made a few short films, and my intention was to just make another short film. And then found after the recantation, after Stephanie comes forward, um, that I was, gathering so much more information and becoming part of a movement that I hadn't expected and you know yes you know early on it was my intention to um, advance the cause of getting these women out of prison which the film does as you see in the film and um, you know and then exonerating them of course was was the, the mission after that so you know <laughs> I found sort of every, every challenge we confronted, there was another big challenge in front of us until finally on November 23rd, 2016, um, the exoneration came forward, and that of course was a huge, huge thing for us.
1: That's a nice note to end on (laughs) from uh, us talking anyway, Um, but I just wanted to open it up to the audience if you would like to ask any questions of Catherine or Lauren or just have a chat offer your opinions, feedback on what we've been discussing.
0: Thanks. Um, I'm just wondering the history around um, the abnormal... If you step outside of heterosexual sex, why then can you just do anything? Where, what's the history in that? Why, if you do anything besides heterosexual sex, you'll just be bad?
2: In terms of being able to or perceive to, yeah, and this is this is goes back in history. Look, I mean, there, there's this same research with masturbation. You you name the sexual practice that whatever it is, and I think it's. Um, Um, specific to the cultural period that you're talking about. We go through periods of time where certain sexual practices are more abhorrent than others. So, for example, at the moment, probably because of Fifty Shades of Grey, BDSM doesn't seem as... um, uh, as much of a smoking gun as being interested in in, in violence or other subversive, because we're at a time with greater, with uh, finding that type of sexual behavior more palatable. 10 years prior, that's almost a key that you were into other kinds of violent, be it domestic violence or other kinds of subversive sexual activity and criminality. And if you go through history, different periods of time have connected the two. So we're not at the period now, but as mentioned in this and Paradise Lost just homosexuality was often coupled with pedophilia. You don't hear it much anymore because we've got a better media, we've also got a better judicial system, but there have been periods in time where there was those two things connected as well. That if you're capable of doing one thing that society considers a problem, it's very easy to continue that line of thinking and thinking you'll do other bad things as well that society considers deviant. Certainly sociology, (coughs) when they've looked at things such as uh, deviant in terms of whatever deviance it is be it sexual or or criminal that there's a link and this is partly also to do with the way doctors would pathologize your sexuality they'd ask leading questions for example if you were let's say in jail for rape or uh, you were being questioned about a crime your Um, examiners would be asking you questions about sexuality in ways that wouldn't be the case for other types of situations you know if you're a homosexual for example you were being asked about homosexuality as though that's part of a risk factor there. There's a very long history of this. I don't know of a time in history where they weren't coupled, but it changes in terms of when as to what sexual behaviours are so worse and considered to be so extremely deviant.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, the Bible has a lot to answer yeah. for. <laughs> if you're talking about what's considered to be, you know, deviant, it is immediately equated with something satanic or the work of the devil. Yeah. Anyone else got a question?
4: Hi, it's a question for Lauren as well. And it's about the relationship between um, crime and sexuality. Um, I come from a similar background looking at kind of, um, I guess, gender sexuality and crime in media sources. Um, And so my question is about if you have any observations on the way that we see these tropes still being reported in media sources now. So these are all fairly historical examples, but then looking at how we're still kind of seeing
2: this criminal trope repeated, in media probably as recently as last week if you go look for it. Well, that's why when you were reading that, I thought that was the Daily Mail because the Daily Mail still does this. The Daily Mail loves salacious headlines that have some sort of fetishistic element to it. So I think when we talk about in general, I would say most media is getting better. But there are still pockets, and I think the Daily Mail is a very good slash bad example of a media outlet that still picks the most gratuitous examples and makes them the story. And I think that's a problem that I don't think necessarily guidelines will overcome because my understanding is they'll be voluntary. And I think Daily Mail's bread and butter is actually these salacious clickbait type headings that are about six lines long and and cram as much... um, You know, as many dildos as you can possibly get in that headline to get people to click on it. And I think, so in general, I think it's getting better. I don't think you're seeing um, non heterosexuality being played up as much, but there's still pockets of the media that does it. I haven't even yet got started talking about conservative media in the United States that still places a heavy emphasis on this. But in general, I'd say Australian media is getting better. Yeah.
1: Are they? Just guidelines, is there any repercussions for any sort of um, No, I mean, in terms, of, in terms of the
3: media, they are, they are just guidelines. And I guess part of the role of the commission is to try and help shape, you know, um, d- different attitudes um, on these issues through using the media as well. I mean, um, if discrimination though occurs in, you know, um, in, in other particular contexts, so people can come to us and complain, hmm. like for example the workplace hmm. or if they 're not getting a job or if you know if they 're transitioning at work or then and there's issues, they can come to us to make a complaint
2: and the idea of saying that it's that guidelines as though just guidelines I don't mean to downplay no, no. that because I think yeah. in certain particularly around trans which I think is becoming a, an increasingly visible issue um media often actually do need help in yeah, this regard they don't know they yeah. don't know
3: the language exactly and and, and all it, of us
2: it's a process of learning totally. not just the media so I think yeah. guidelines yeah they might be toothless in this regard but there's actually a whole lot of media outlets that need help in this regard and I think mm. that's a really useful toolkit for them
1: Hi, I just wanted to ask, um, how susceptible do you think the community overall is to headlines like the the one with transgender um, people in them just for the sake of it? Um, Do you think that culturally um, we're shifting to not really buying into those sorts of things anymore or do you think that we're still susceptible to them?
0: I think
2: we're becoming more media literate as a society. and I think that's partly due to the fact that we've got a deluge of information coming from our, coming at us. We tend to curate our content. So we're, we're looking at not necessarily just things that confirm our biases, but also we're tending to cherry pick from uh, a variety of media outlets. I think we're getting more discerning. I think the combination of the spotlight on fake news, depending on which uh, way you approach that, has been a helpful discussion in terms of making us aware that there is different qualities in sources and something you know we, we tell students all the time is not all websites are created equal. So I think generally speaking with the more media we're exposed to the better we are at discerning good from bad but also the more we're exposed to the less likely we are to get a homogenous impression of any one story I think that's good that helps in from my perspective limit the power of any one story in the sense that if you're hearing a number of different voices you're more likely to get a more surround sound picture of something than if you're just getting the Herald Sun's version of it which I think is part of the reason um You know, uh, when we talk about people who are less well-read or, for example, if you're in a small town in the US and your local newspaper has been closed, your uh, um, access to information is reduced. So, from my perspective, the more content, the better, and I think, uh, yes, things are getting better. We're less likely to be duped and also less likely to be swayed because of the variety of content. Yeah.
5: This isn't actually a a question, it's a theory about how this can happen. Prosecutors and DAs and the police are motivated to find someone for whom the crime is responsible. And in a lot of cases, prosecutors can be publicly elected and so they have to satisfy the popular will. But the biggest reason, I believe, is that they suffer no consequences when they misbehave. There's no punishment for prosecutorial misconduct. And so, for example, in this case, There'll be no repercussions on the DA or the prosecutor for inappropriately prosecuting these four women. And that's a big part of
4: the problem.
2: I think that's a really good point, particularly in the context of Paradise Lost, where you see the DA saying it's an 11 out of 10 chance that we're going to get a prosecution, which builds up the confidence in the parents that the right guys have been caught. And that, I think, led to an enormous amount of repercussions. I mean, you saw how angry that mother was. I don't doubt she has every reason to be angry. Her son is dead. But that viciousness about belief that, the, that those were the criminals can only be fed by a judicial system that thinks they've got it all wrapped up. Yeah.
1: So um, lots of police forces around the world would claim to be um, proactively looking to recruit more diverse members. Um, What impact do you think that's likely to have in terms of, um, I guess, slowing down this rush to judgment that seems to happen in some of these cases uh, and does that whole us and their mentality? Um,
3: At the Commission, we think it's really critical that... um, workplaces embrace diversity and inclusion. When you talk about Victoria Police, um, we've recently done some work with them in relation to issues around sexual harassment and sex discrimination within the police force. And that's been a piece of work that they have um, openly uh, engaged with us on and have been very um, transparent and public about that there's a problem uh, in in the police force, and that they want to do something about it. So part of their recent recruitment um, strategy is to attract more women, for example, into the force, in order to combat the um, the attitudes, the the sex discrimination that, that's occurring within within that environment. Obviously, it's not enough just to recruit. Um, more diversity, it has to be an inclusive environment. You know, once people are, are in that environment, which means then looking at all the different structures to how people that have got diverse backgrounds can progress within an organisation. And at um, the police, for example, there's just there's a particular type of male that succeeds. And so that's what you've sort of got to try and unravel. Um, because if you're not that particular kind of male, if you're gay, for example, or if you're a woman, and it goes on, then you're not going to get those opportunities and advantages, and, and then you're more susceptible to being sexually harassed and leaving. Uh, and it's everything from the availability of part-time work to um, you know um, opportunities for promotion and advancement. It's very entrenched, uh, and it's not just Victoria Place. It, I mean, this is an issue across, across workplaces and that's, yeah, that, that's the sort of work that at the Commission we like you know, to get involved in. But I do think the recruitment's really critical. I mean, there are a lot of biases with recruitment generally. Um, uh, and this is why the Victorian government at the moment is, is, is running a pilot on what they're calling blind recruitment, which is not having names at all associated with recruitment and trialling that as a pilot because of all the um, assumptions that people bring uh, to the recruitment process by simply looking at a name.
1: Right, might be a good place to stop then. Would you join me in thanking Catherine and Lauren for (laughs) enlightening us with their views on this um, difficult topic? Thank you. You
0: You have been listening to an ACME podcast. For more recordings, go to soundcloud.com slash online or the Acme website.